You are listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to uh, this session of the Carnegie Endowment on the economic turmoil in the Arab countries. Can partners help? Uh, <clears throat> the occasion is the uh, uh, publication of the and launch of the Deauville uh, Partnership Report on Trade uh, that uh, uh, was led by the World Bank and specifically by uh, Jean-Pierre Chauffour here to my left, who among my many sins I one day uh, recruited into the World Bank many, many years, uh, many, many years ago. Uh, so I'm particularly proud to have him with us today. Um, uh, the, uh, just by way of a quick introduction, it's now two years uh, since, uh, over two years, uh, since the Arab awakening uh, first occurred. Uh, but uh, as everybody in the room knows, uh, the uh, uh, countries uh, that have been in the leadership of this movement are uh, in uh, serious, uh, very serious uh, economic difficulties uh, and uh, um, need help. Uh, where are they going to get help? Uh, from the international community. Uh, the Deauville Partnership Report uh, looks at the uh, way that the international community can help more specifically through the trade front. But we also have with us uh, uh, Nema Shafiq, who is also an old friend, uh, Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund, responsible for uh, several of the uh, countries of the Arab awakening. Uh, Minouche is, uh, is originally from Egypt as well even though she's not responsible for Egypt at the, <laughs> at, the, uh, at the IMF, which I suppose makes her job a little easier, uh, although she is responsible for Cyprus, uh, something <laughs> that I want to mention at some point. Um, of course, one of the very uh, big questions is uh, uh, you know, the social impact of what's, uh, what's going on. Uh, people say that the Arab awakening, etc., arose because of the, a lot of the social difficulties, unemployment, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, unfortunately, uh, so far things have been getting worse on that front. And uh, <clears throat> to discuss specifically the social aspect of the crisis, we have uh, from Beirut, uh, here by video link, Ibrahim Saif, who is a resident scholar at our Carnegie Middle East uh, uh, Center, and he is an economist specializing in the political economy of the Middle East uh, and is especially interested in uh, uh, labor markets. So it'll be interesting to get uh, his angle. And uh, last but not least, I was telling uh, Marwan Moasha here on my right, who is the Vice President of Studies for the Middle East, uh, Carnegie Endowment, uh, who was, as he always is, when we organize events together, 
uh, apologizing for the fact that he's not an economist. <laughs> and I was reassuring him that I'm not sure how much econo- how relevant economics is uh, or economic analysis is uh, in the current context. So Marwan will bring in his wisdom uh, from uh, the political angle, kind of what's, how does it all uh, fit together, uh, the politics and the economics, something that... Uh, my friends at the IMF and former colleagues at the IMF and World Bank are not especially equipped uh, to do. Uh, so um, with that, with that uh, introduction, uh, what I'd like to do is uh, uh, to start off by asking uh, uh, Minouche to give us a little bit the uh, big picture on the economics then. Uh, Jean-Pierre will talk a little bit about the structural issues, we'll also what, what is in the G8 uh, Deauville partnership report, and then Ibrahim will talk about the social aspects, and, and Marwan will uh, bring it together from a, for us from the political as well as economic perspective. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Yuri, and thank you to Carnegie for uh, inviting me here today. I thought I'd very briefly just touch on three things. First, What's the context for economic reform in the region? Two, second, what are the key policies that have to be reformed? And three, what the role of external partners uh, could be? And first, uh, let me just start with my key message is that what happens in the region in the years ahead will essentially be determined by domestic forces and the institutional bargaining that will occur between the various political forces in the countries. Frankly, external external partners can play a little bit of a role at the margin in terms of advice, financing, capacity building, uh, investment, and so on. But really, the big drivers are going to be domestic. So that's the, that's the main message. But let's start with the context uh, for, uh, for reforms. I think everybody knows very well that In all the Arab countries in transition, there are some common features. And the first is that expectations are very high. Uh, After the Arab, the so-called Arab Spring, uh, people's expectations and that initial euphoria of uh, after after the the change in in regimes uh, meant that, you know, like in all these situations, people are looking for a peace dividend, a revolution dividend, and it's usually, unfortunately, proves to be elusive. The other common feature is that the initial conditions are quite uh, are quite tough. Two years on from uh, from the beginning of this transition, we've seen a decline in economic growth. We've seen unemployment, which was already high, only go higher. We've seen government budgets stretched even further. And we've seen international reserves of all of these countries decline. Now, the good news is nobody's had a macroeconomic crisis. Actually, they've been able to maintain macroeconomic stability despite this worsening of, uh, of, of economic conditions. But as many of you know, that stability is increasingly tenuous and under pressure. I think the other contextual issue is that the outlook is not positive. You know, in, in the jargon of, of, of uh, people who do outlooks, there are more risks to the downside, as we say, which means that you're more likely to hear bad news in the period ahead than good news. The reason is the global economy is not exactly buoyant. We don't expect big increases in demand coming from stimulus from the world economy. Tourism receipts are, are, are below levels that were seen in the recent past. 
And Syria is is both a huge humanitarian crisis and risk, but also a big risk of spillovers to many countries in the region from from what's happening in Syria. So all of those are vulnerabilities and risks that we see ahead. And the other contextual issue, and I think Marwan will probably speak more about this, is there isn't really a plan in any of the countries. In, I worked uh, on the transition in Eastern Europe after the fall of the Berlin Wall in the 90s, and there was a plan, and the plan was very clear. It was the acquis communautaire prepared you know, of the European Union, which was pretty specific and detailed about what policies, both economic and political, would, were the destination point. And the transition economies in Eastern Europe, they could have lots of internal battles, but really they kind of all knew where they wanted to get to, and that provided a policy anchor and a source of huge stability in the transition. In the Middle East... There is no plan. There is no plan on the economic front or on the political front of what the destination point is. And so much of the uncertainty that we see now is a reflection of that lack of consensus about economic strategy and political strategy. And much of the debate we see reflects the sort of institutional bargaining as that plan is thrashed out in society. Let me now turn to the policy agenda and where we see that. Um, and just to be clear, the, the economic transformation that has to happen in these economies is massive. It, this is not tinkering around the edges of reform. These are actually some fundamental reforms. Uh, and those fundamental reforms have to take place in, uh, in a way that involves the public and involves consultation and political engagement, which is not a strong tradition in many countries in the region. Uh, you know, parliaments are new and relatively inexperienced. Uh, there are weak traditions of political parties. Those political parties didn't traditionally run on clear policy agendas. Uh, and we have a Twitter and Facebook-empowered civil society, which is a completely new uh, political force in the region. So this policy agenda, which which uh, which I'll briefly describe, is taking place in a very different context and in a context in which implementation capacity in many countries is very weak, particularly in countries like Libya and Yemen, but also in some of the others. And so coming from the IMF, of course, what I would say is the top priority in any policy agenda is macroeconomic stabilization. It's a prerequisite uh, for everything else. And here... The situation is difficult. If you look at where fiscal deficits were in 2010 at the start of the transition, they were about 6% in the region. Today, they average about 9%. If you look at where debt is in the region, the average now debt-to-GDP ratio is about 70%. So the initial macroeconomic conditions are tough, and measures will have to be taken to address those. But beyond the macro, there are probably five key areas where we would say significant reforms have to happen. And I won't go into the detail because we can take that up in the discussion, but they will sound pretty familiar. The business environment. And the business environment, I'll say, isn't, uh, isn't just an efficiency issue. Uh, the old business environment favored certain groups. Uh, you know, I, I went back last night... I don't know why, partly because I went back and read my PhD thesis from a very long time ago. Um, And the final line in it, which was on the private sector in Egypt, said, um, we need to go, the government needs to transform 
rent seekers into, into real capitalists. Uh, and I think in some ways that's the punchline for the business environment in the region. Making that transition from rent seekers into real capitalists is, is key. And it's an equity issue because it's about fairness and having a level playing field so that not only a few privileged business people make all the money. The second key area is trade, and I think others will talk more about trade, so I won't say much about that, but really transforming these economies to be much more export-oriented. Third is the labor market and education reforms must deal with these issues of, of youth unemployment, but also increasing opportunities for women who are, who are grossly underrepresented in the labor force in the region. Fourth area is access to finance, just one small number. Only 10% of firms in this region use banks to finance investment. That's the lowest rate of bank financing of any region in the world. So basically everyone relies on own generated profits for investment, which, which, which is really indicative of the degree to which access to finance needs to be improved. And then finally, the issue that's gotten probably the most press of late is moving away from untargeted subsidies to a modern social safety net that is targeted to the poor. Uh, Untargeted subsidies eats up about 8% of GDP in this region. That's, I mean, you know, we economists throw out these numbers. 8% of GDP, 8% of the economy is spent on untargeted subsidies. It's equivalent to about 22% of government revenue, so about a quarter of the government's revenue is being spent on untargeted subsidies. And we all know the economics. Those subsidies, even though they're very popular with the poor, mainly the benefits mainly accrue to the upper quartiles in income distribution. So the only way to achieve this economic transformation that has to happen, to invest more in infrastructure and education and healthcare, which the region needs, is to move away from these untargeted subsidies and create space to invest in these other areas. Now, what's the role of, uh, of external partners? Well, as I said, in the end, they will have a limited role, but they can play an important role. Uh, clearly advice, finance, ca capacity building, and particularly for the U.S. and European Union, genuine deep market access is, is an important potential game changer. And I'll leave it to you to speak a bit more about the importance of market access and also clearly investment. So those are all the, the instruments that will matter. For the IMF, our key contributions are in the areas of policy advice, financing, and mobilizing other financing with our money, and capacity building. In the past year alone, we've, uh, we've provided a total of about $8.5 billion to Jordan, Morocco, and Yemen. And as you probably know, we are, uh, we are still having talks ongoing with Egypt and Tunisia. And we're extensively involved in Libya on capacity building uh, to help them build institutional capacity in, in that country. I think the final point I would say is that external partners need to expect that this is going to be a bumpy road. It's going to be a bumpy road, and so far we don't have a clear destination point. Um, and so, given that it's going to be a bumpy road and we haven't got an agreed destination, I think it's very important to stay focused on the rules of the road that have gotten other countries to good destinations. Um, you know, one of the architects of the European Union once said, if you want things to happen, you need leadership. But if you want things to last, you need institutions. And I think 
a lot of the discussion currently in the region is too much about we need leadership, who's up, who's down. And in the long run, those things don't really matter. <laughs> in the long run, what will determine the, the prospects for this region are the long-term institutional questions like having a balance of power in politics, having transparency in public life, having competition, both political and economic, that's real, having inclusion, again, both political and economic. When you look at economic history, those fundamental rules of the road are what have determined whether countries are economically successful or not. So my concluding remark is that in this, on this bumpy road with unclear destination, focus on those long-term institutional issues because they're the ones that throughout human history have gotten people to good destinations. Excellent. Thank you very much, um, Minush. I was trying to think about the situation in the United States as you were talking about <laughs> the importance of institutions, but <coughs> that's another, another session for us. Um, uh, Jean-Pierre, tell us about your wonderful report. And, uh, and generally, yes. uh, on the structural questions, if you can. Thank you, Uri. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, Carnegie Endowment for you know, hosting this, uh, this event. I see some friends in the room. It's always nice. Um, this report has been discussed uh, in the region in a number of uh, different places. Uh, so it reflects you know, a process of consultation with a number of countries. Um, but this is the first time we launch it in, in Washington. I mean, we will be launched only once, but it is here today. So I'd like to thank you for, again, for, for hosting this, this event. Um, I'd like to spend just a, a second on the title of that book because I think it's followed up very closely to what uh, Nehemiah just said about, you know, the process of, of, you know, what is the road to success. And, and the title of the book is From Political to Economic Awakening. Uh, the path of economic integration. And the reason why we chose that title is that the condition under which uh, the political transition in the Middle East is going to unfold, uh, positively or negatively, depending on the, on the circumstances, a lot will depend on the uh, underlying economic conditions. So the two are really linked in a way. Uh, the uh, political transition, the democratic transition, is going to be very much dependent on the type of economic uh, strengths and economic infrastructure that would be able to, um, to, to, uh, to be developed over time. And the uh, subtitle, The Path of Economic Integration, is, um, is really about, it's more than trade, it's more than foreign direct investment, it's, it's a path of integration in a sense of uh, choosing a direction and, and, and sticking to that direction, you know, building institutions and, and using trade and FDI as policy instrument to achieve uh, those objectives. And there are very few, uh, uh, actually, policy instruments that are available right now in the hands of the policymakers in the region, in Jordan, in Egypt, or elsewhere. What is it that they can do? I mean, they have large fiscal deficits. They are facing a situation of uh, low economic growth, high unemployment, very weak external demand. Uh, the circumstances, external circumstances are very difficult, you know, uh, on top of their own domestic issues. Uh, the price of oil for uh, oil importers is very high. You had the, uh, 
uh, the uh, price of commodities, especially for countries that are net food importers, is are also very high. So they are really subject to a terms of negative terms of trade shock. So they have to deal with so many different issues at the same time. They cannot really expand the uh, expenditures, and uh, they have very limit, limited room in terms of monetary policy because of their various ex exchange arrangement. So there is very little that they can do, actually. What kind of policy instrument uh, can they use? Uh, one exception may be trade and foreign direct investment. Trade in a sense that um, all those countries are located close to the largest economic market in the world. And they have a tiny proportion of, of that market. Actually, this is uh, one of the starting points of that book, is to emphasize that this region is poorly integrated in the first place. If you exclude oil and gas and the petroleum products, the MENA region of 400 million people export as much as Switzerland. So this gives you the, the sort of, of, of lack of integration of the region. The flip side of, of that observation is that there is a lot of room for expanding trade, for growing through integration. And that's the, uh, the, um, the purpose of that book, is to show how uh, this can be achieved. It's not going to be delivered uh, overnight, but we know that countries that have used an export-led strategy have, we are able to catch up uh, in a matter of a generation. We have this example from, it was mentioned already, from Eastern Europe. We have, a, obviously, the uh, great East Asian miracle where in many countries in Asia, countries were able to uh, catch up uh, and the process of catching up is something that can be replicated in many uh, different places in the world. It does, it, you know, no, no, nothing st stops them from uh, uh, adopting such a strategy. It's all about imitating. It's all about uh, doing at a cheaper, in a cheaper way what others have already invented. And uh, China is doing it very well. Other countries in Asia are doing well. Well, when we have a chance maybe to discuss about the context in, in the Arab world, we, we are not we, we are not there in terms of the, uh, the, uh, the value chain and the production network that would allow this type of catching up. But the, the uh, process of catch-up growth uh, on paper, uh, and I will obviously acknowledge many of the, the difficulties right now in the region, but at least on paper this can be done and we know how to, how to, to do it or how to promote it. Uh, the process of inventing the next frontier is much more difficult, and that's obviously what you know, more advanced countries are, are dealing with. Now, in terms of um, what, you know, just to answer the question that was put to us, you know, uh, economic turmoil in the Arab countries, can partners help? Uh, m my answer would be a qualified yo. <laughs> it's a, a, a combination of yes and no. Um, uh, on, the, uh, on the limit of what partners can achieve, um, first of all, we need to acknowledge that we don't start in terms of, and when I say partners, I'm really thinking about the, uh, the countries, the bilateral partners, the, the, the trading partners. Those relationships are not starting from a blank sheet. And, and the type of, of uh, relationship that had occurred in the past uh, has, you know, is a legacy that needs to be dealt with. And what I'm saying is that there is a need to, of rebuilding trust and confidence in, uh, in the, and credibility in this, uh, in this relationship. Um, and, um, but, you know, a partnership to what? And that's the main question. You know, what is the direction that the countries themselves would like to take? You know, uh, how do they see themselves uh, 20 years down the road? 
the comparison with Eastern Europe was said, and it, it has its own limit. You know, it's true that in Eastern Europe the direction was 100% clear. It was moving away from you know the command economy of communism and tried to basically uh, hook up to Europe in economic terms and in political and defense terms as well. Um, now, um, even if you know some countries in the region have a, a view about you know and have some clarity about where they want to go. Um, as the West, I mean, Europe, uh, you know, the G8 and others, do they have the means of helping? How can they help? You know, when you see day after day, you know, the crisis, uh, Uri just mentioned Cyprus, but it's just after, it's one country after many others, where we know very well that the treasuries are quite uh, 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 limited in terms of, of what can be, uh, what can be provided. And, and the countries themselves, they uh, tend to adopt very short-term measures right now. I mean, it, it was also mentioned, you know, they tend to be uh, populist in nature, uh, to uh, expand more uh, subsidies that are not targeted and, and try to uh, calm, you know, the, uh, the streets through uh, ends out in the form of, uh, of uh, wage increases to civil servants or recruitment of civil servants. So this is not really preparing you know, uh, the long term and, and preparing, you know, the, the, the transition. I'm not saying that policymakers are not under tremendous pressure to act and to, uh, and to, do, uh, and to try to provide, uh, you know, some uh, social order and social peace. But it's clear that all these issues, you know, issues related to uh, the social expectation, uh, the constitutional uh, discussion that are taking place in, in, uh, in Tunis or in Tunisia or in Egypt, for instance, all these issues are dwarfing the, uh, the more uh, policy, economic debate. You know, it's not really uh, in, in the front burner. And uh, Uri, you mentioned in your introduction that trade and, and foreign direct investment were not really the topic that we are... Uh, Heavily discussed in the press in the in the region, and, and and that's true. I mean, it's not it's not on the radar screen, uh, and um, the report was not, has not been written for you know the um, the type of recommendation to be made you know today or tomorrow. It has some sort of a vision down the road, and and at some point, at uh, the uh, question of integration will be uh, will be posed, and the policymakers are going to ask themselves about what is it that we want to do. Where, where do we belong? Are we going to build, uh, uh, foster, and, and strengthen our own uh, intra-Arab relationship? So, is you know, do we need to build the uh, uh, the Arab Union in a way, and, and using some of the agreements and some of the talks that have been uh, made for, for for many years? Uh, so is it is it what what is the uh, what is really uh, being uh, perceived uh, or is it going something else? You know, is it going to be uh, integration with Europe, uh, for instance, for for the Maghreb countries, given their uh, already their openness to Europe, and and what would be um, what would be the nature of that um, of that uh, of that uh, integration? Um, I don't want to to be too long at this stage. I want just to flag the fact that. Um, I said that there is a need for credibility and uh, in the relationship between MENA countries and, and, um, and their partners. Um, the, the European Union has been proposing a number of initiatives, uh, a number of communication have been made in terms of supporting the process of economic and political transition in MENA. They have put on the table the notion of deep and comprehensive free trade agreements. 
which are actually much more than trade. They are really talking about uh, the uh, what we call in the jargon the behind-the-border uh, regulation, basically addressing the uh, almost the entire spectrum of the uh, of the main building blocks of the acquis communautaire. Um, now, it seems that this process is not getting a lot of traction, and and. Perhaps one assumption that can be made is that this process is not getting traction because of this lack of credibility. How serious is Europe uh, in terms of actually doing and acting uh, and walking the talk in a way? And what we are suggesting at the beginning of the book is that in order to build, to rebuild that credibility, Europe, in particular Europe, but not only Europe, yeah. uh, needs to... Um, um, to um, to give some to show that they are serious about it, and there are a number of ways of doing that. You know, just mentioned briefly um, uh, some of them. Uh, seven very quickly. Market access for agricultural products, for instance. We know, for instance, as a result of the uh, uh, agricultural agreement signed between the European Union and Morocco, Morocco can expect to export, in addition. Uh, Ten of thousand of kilos or tons of tomatoes. So it's it's uh, I have the number sixty eight thousand tons of tomatoes for whatever that uh, that means. Uh, it's olive oil, it's tomatoes, it's a number of, of products where there is some comparative advantage in the in the uh, in the southern Mediterranean. Uh, so okay, what are the signaling effects? You know, is Europe willing to um, make a move and actually to suggest similar agreement with Tunisia and down the road with Egypt, Jordan, and the others? Uh, upgrading industrial norms and standards. There is a lot that can be done by Europe to help those countries actually uh, upgrade their own norms and standards, especially in, in the light manufacturing type of industries where they have some comparative advantage. And, um, and that would be a, a, a meaningful way of creating jobs and, and actually also uh, strengthening you know, the social fabric. Fostering services liberalization is another approach where a lot can be achieved in uh, opening up markets in, in Europe. Uh, and uh, we all know, I mean, I am a European, I know very well, you know, the difficulty of opening a services trade within Europe. But again, uh, here there is a trade-off to be made by main policymakers in, uh, in Europe in terms of uh, how credible their uh, relationship with the South uh, uh, can, can develop. And we know that if uh, the uh, uh, trade restrictiveness in services is being uh, uh, um, is brought down, then there are many uh, benefits, not only to the uh, service industry itself, but to, more importantly, perhaps the manufacturing industry. Because services, services are key uh, entrance, input to uh, be, becoming a competitive uh, manufacturer uh, uh, these days. Uh, uh, the fourth one is uh, energy, promoting solar energy exports. Uh, obviously, the sub, you know, the North Africa has a comparative advantage in, in solar. Um, now, what needs to be done is basically to, ex to extend to uh, Morocco, Tunisia, and, and the countries that have uh, developed um, uh, concentrated solar power to expand the type of uh, import uh, subsidies and support that is being provided to the European uh, makers. And just building the CSP, the concentrated solar power industry, for instance, in countries like Morocco and Tunisia, would create uh, tens of thousands of jobs. So that's another, another uh, answer. Um, 
The next one is labor mobility. And, and um, there, it's not, we are not talking about uh, opening borders you know, uh, just tomorrow. But again, it's a matter of uh, being some uh, credible relationship, saying that you know, if the vision that we have down the road is a, a Mediterranean, integrated Mediterranean economic area with four freedom, freedom of movement of goods, services, capital, then labor would have to come down the road. Not tomorrow, but you know, uh, in 15 or 20 years' time. But we don't need to wait until that time to show goodwill, to show that we are serious about it. And this could be done, for instance, through uh, seasonal workers. Uh, there are many examples in the world, uh, and in the book we mentioned the, uh, the example of Canada vis-à-vis -vis Mexico and some uh, Central uh, American states, <coughs> where you have those movements in and out of seasonal workers, where you show and you demonstrate uh, your willingness to, to do things. Uh, the last thing I want to say is uh, on regulatory convergence. I think there is a lot that Europe can do, and, and the G8, and, and I did not mention Turkey, but Turkey is very much one of the players. Uh, there is a lot that those countries can do in terms of improving the regulatory environment and improving the institution, because we are back to the, this notion of institution. And just to give an example, in terms of government procurement, for instance, uh, in a country like Morocco, 15 to 20% of uh, GDP is being uh, spent by the government in, uh, goods, uh, in goods and services, mostly goods, uh, through procurement. If... Uh, through better procurement rules, you are able to save 10% of, uh, of, the, uh, of the bills, of, of the cost of the invoice of those goods. It's 1.5% of GDP. This is not uh, uh, something that is uh, negligible. So there is clearly a need for uh, those countries to, um, at some point, to get clarity about where, what is the direction, and then for the partners to use the mean at their disposal to show that they are genuinely interested in, in providing support. But I would also rejoin, you know, Nemat when you started saying, you know, this is mostly a domestic agenda. I, I agree 100%. Uh, so here we are talking about maybe the 10 or 15% of what can be uh, uh, brought by the external world. Thank you. <coughs> okay, thank you very much. Uh, it was very comprehensive. Um, let me ask uh, Ibrahim next. Uh, so IMF, World Bank are uh, arguing for, uh, you know, greater macroeconomic disciplines, uh, greater selectivity in providing uh, subsidies uh, across the board. They also are arguing for increased trade, market access, but also uh, increased opening uh, in these economies. How realistic is all this, Ibrahim, given your reading there, you are in the region, you live there, uh, your reading of the social situation and the labor situation in, in these countries? Thank you, uh, Lee. And uh, um, thanks for giving us to address your audience. Um, in, in, um, the question is not, uh, I cannot disagree that we need to reform subsidies and we need probably to uh, streamline trade and increase uh, trade integration. Can you hear me, Auri? You need to yeah. push the microphone closer to you, maybe. Or, uh, yeah, you uh, we don't hear you very well. Maybe you should be closer to the microphone. Try it now.
Uh, no. You muted, I think. No, we don't hear you at all now. I think the mic is muted there. Go ahead. No, we do not hear you. You're muted. All right. Um, what I'm going to do, Ibrahim, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, I'm going to ask the technicians to help you. And meanwhile, I'm going to ask Marwan uh, to uh, give, uh, give his presentation. Will somebody? I think somebody already. All right. Okay. Go ahead, Marwan. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Ori. I'm very glad to... Uh, uh, here, uh, Minouche, a renowned economist, uh, uh, arrive at the same political conclusions that I will make, uh, which uh, sort of proves my point that you cannot talk about economics and politics anywhere, but certainly in the Middle East, in isolation of each other. If today we are witnessing a state where freedom without bread does not give you much, and a lot of people have not sort of arrived at better economic conditions just because of the Arab awakenings. We've also seen that bread without freedom did not work either in the Middle East in earlier times. And it did not work simply because as Middle East countries opened up their economic systems, they did not parallel this with a political reform process that, as Minouche said, created the right institutions that would check abuses when they happen, that would provide proper oversight over the executive branch, that would make sure that growth does not come to an elite few, but to the population at large. And so this, if bread does, without freedom does not work and freedom without bread does not work, the simple conclusion, it's so simple, it's so self-evident that I don't understand why countries of the region don't get it, is that economic and political reform must go together. They cannot happen in isolation of each other. We've tried economic reform without political reform. It did not work. We're trying political reform without economic reform, and it does not work either. That simple conclusion is neither internalized by countries who have undergone transitions and by countries who have not undergone transitions at the same time. That's the first argument I want to make. The second argument is we are all sort of impatient about this process of transformation that is taking place in the Arab world. Somehow we all chose to call it an Arab Spring two years ago and that created sort of you know unrealistic expectations that these transformation processes can go from autocratic regimes to democratic ones overnight. And today we're calling it an Arab inferno because two years later, you know, our expectations have not been realized and we're not all very unhappy and think that the world is going to come to an end in the Middle East. Neither scenarios are simply realistic. This is a process of change. This is a transformation process that's going to take time. It's neither going to be smooth nor linear nor quick. And one needs to give it the time that it deserves. Let us remember that as recently as 20 years ago when the Berlin Wall fell, and when, as also Minouche said, the, 
The end game was known to these countries. They wanted to move away from a socialist, centrally planned system, economically, I'm not talking politically, to a market-oriented system, even when they knew the end game. Today, 23 years later, Poland is doing much better than Romania or Bulgaria. So, I mean, these things take time. And if we allow them time in other regions of the world, we should always also allow them time to develop in the Middle East. The third point I want to make is that as dire and bad economy, as economic conditions are in countries like Egypt and Tunisia and elsewhere, let's also remember these are not unprecedented. In the late 80s, Egypt probably was under worse conditions than it is to, in today. Uh, inflation was at 20%, unemployment was at 20%, fiscal deficit was at 20%. They were very, very dire economic conditions. So, uh, yes, they are bad today, and largely, I think, because of the inexperience rather than the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood. But whatever the case, these are not insurmountable uh, problems if we have some political stability. The fourth point I want to make is that bad economic conditions in the Arab world might be, might be, I don't want to be too definitive on this point, a blessing in disguise for countries that have not undergone transition. Why? Because they're going to probably force these countries to open up their political space. From now on, bad, you know, uh, difficult economic con uh, 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 reform measures are going to be increasingly more difficult to make by unelected governments. And therefore, without the presence of, you know, some form of political reform, it's going to be very difficult for these countries to argue to their people that they need to take difficult economic reforms. And these reforms will have to be taken. Let's, let's agree on this. You know, there are no magical solutions. Uh, it is not that there are that many different economic formulas to deal with the with the question, today, more or less, more or less, the solutions are known. What is lacking is the political sort of space that surrounds these environments. But it's not, you know, we're not trying today to pick from an economy, from a market-oriented economy versus a communist economy versus, we're not doing that anymore. The solutions are more or less known. Um, the fifth uh, uh, point I want to make, I'm trying to be very quick, uh, uh, is that from now on, again, as Minouche said, you cannot just be in economic crisis uh, uh, sort of mode all the time and just responding to one crisis after the other. You need a plan, and you need a plan that deals with the structural problems of the economy which in the Arab world has mostly to do with unemployment because of a youth uh, uh, population, youthful population, with fiscal deficits because the government spends uh, beyond its means on un untargeted subsidies. These have to be uh, dealt with through a plan that tells people that, yes, in the short run, you know, they're going to have to basically pay uh, for these difficult measures, but that at the end of the road, there's light at the end of the tunnel, and they know where they're heading. 
Today, most Arab governments, those that have undergone transitions and those that have not, you know, don't argue to their people beyond, we don't have the money, you have to pay for it. That's not an argument that's going to sit well, and it's not sitting well, as we have all seen, because of the Arab uprisings. But this plan, or these plans, need to be done differently than uh, what has been the case before in the Arab world, which is to just come up with a plan by you know, a few economists in a closed room and then basically give it to people and say, this is you know, the magic formula. All we need from you is to trust us and implement it. it you know, people trusted Arab governments for a while. It, it did not work. And economic plans in the past have not led to the sort of prosperity that uh, the Arab publics expected. And so from now on, the plans have to be one, in my view, inclusive, meaning that people have to have a share in devising them through their parliaments, through their civil society. You cannot just write a plan and then present it to people. They have to be measurable. You cannot just engage in reform rhetoric. You have to have performance indicators, milestones, uh, uh, time frames, links to the budget. People have to know where they are heading at every step of the way rather than telling them, you know, trust us, we will deliver you uh, when, when, when you don't. And plans must be communicated once again, you know, and not communicated as an afterthought after they are done. But every step of the way, communication with people must be an integral part of these plans if they are to uh, gain a buy-in from uh, the population. And the last and, in my view, one of the most important points is that economic conditions in the Arab world do not always have quick economic solutions and are very much linked to the political uh, uh, environments. Most of the Arab world is in a rentier sort of state economy, where in oil-producing countries, productivity has been suppressed because uh, these countries are behaving in a, in a welfare state environment where people get what they need without having to work for it, but without having to question their governments for it either. No taxation, no representation. And in oil-consuming <laughs> countries, in oil-consuming... See, this is what the IMF and World Bank will not be able to tell you, but I can. <laughs> in oil-consuming countries, it's also a semi-rentier semi state because the state uses these funds, either in the form of grants or remittances from oil-producing countries, to spend on activities that are not always productive ones, but spend it on activities where they create layers around the system, basically buying off their loyalty through favors. And to move from such systems, rentier-based systems, to productive systems does not just require an economic plan it more importantly requires a political will to move away from these systems. If you are going to create enough jobs for the large number of people that are entering the workforce, if you are trying to 
you know, deal with these structural problems. These cannot be dealt with anymore through, you know, the government uh, employing half the workforce or through uh, uh, unproductive activities. If, the, if countries are serious about addressing these structurally, they will have to find a way to move away from rentier-based systems to productive ones. It is not easy because they will have to modify their traditional constituency, which has been dependent on these favors. They will have to modify them gradually. It's not an easy undertaking, but in my view, there is no other way if these countries are to, uh, 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 are to deal with their problems structurally because as we have heard from all the panelists today, help is not going to come from the outside. The outside does not have the money, does not have the means, whether it is the European Union or the United States or even the IMF and the World Bank, the ability to provide help in the kind of generous amounts that Arab countries have been used to in the past is over. And from now on, domestic uh, 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 it, it will have to be dealt with uh, through domestic means rather than through the outside. That's what I want to make. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was excellent also, uh, Marwan. Um, so, Ibrahim, uh, does it work now? Uh, I don't know. Are, can you yes, hear me Yes, it now? works. It works. Don't touch anything. <laughs> Just talk. I am not, right. I'm trying, actually. I was scared that it's not going to work. So, um, it's good that I, you know, I am now the last speaker after three distinguished presentations that covers economic and politics and the element of trade and, uh, and investment. What I want to say, and that is, uh, again, uh, replying to uh, your questions about how reality looks here, um, let me just uh, remind you quickly that the Arab awakening um, took place uh, as a matter people will want some equal opportunity, uh, more social justice, uh, a kind of inclusive growth that I will not uh, discuss the element of which, but we haven't actually so far uh, agreed in either transitional countries or other countries on what really does this mean and how actors are going to engage to achieve that. And I cannot also see... Uh, with the fact that some of the, you know, recommendation that is beyond macro that is mentioned by Mino in terms of subsidies and business environment. Now the question is that how can really we create conditions in the uh, Arab countries transition to sort of reach and enable the uh, or achieve the objective of uh, social justice in, in, in these economies. And for that, I have a couple of uh, sort of uh, points to make in terms of what kind of system. And I want sort of to focus on this the last two years, uh, basically because I have been observing at least what is happening in Egypt and, and Tunisia, and whether we are moving into a more of a, a merit-based system in the Arab countries, whether we are really achieving any progress in terms of governance or building institutions, and whether we are building or achieving a kind of consensus building versus polarization in societies. The answer, the problem, comes to the transition. 
And I'm sorry if I stopping sometimes only because there are some disturbances. So I um, is that we we hear you quite well. I think. Can you hear him at the back? Yeah, we hear you well, uh, Ibrahim. Just uh, okay. carry on. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the process of transition so far in in in, in the Arab countries? It has been hectic. And and uh, it has been hectic for reasons that I'll try to uh, elaborate uh, a little bit on. But when we also talk about the transformation, we have to bring in also the issue of the identity politics in this country. So it's not only economic and social challenges, but also it's something related to the identity of the society, which also has influenced the process uh, and Clearly, there is a high degree of also polarization within these societies that influence the policy making throughout the process in a way. And therefore, we are sort of witnessing also the, the policy that has so far been introduced in the country. Unfortunately, it's not going in the direction to establish or to sort of create the conditions for a form of uh, consensus building or social justice in the uh, Arab uh, countries. We could talk a little bit specifically uh, on Egypt and the case or the debate that is still ongoing between the deep state on the one hand and the equalization of the state, i.e. that the brotherhood is trying to control the institutions instead of reforming these institutions. And also the process so far undermines the dire economic situations in the Arab countries and actually the political aspects took primacy again for, I think, three reasons. One is that the bureaucracy is, uh, is, is sort of very weak and inefficient and that is inherited from the old system. Number two is that in politics the payoffs uh, are quite immediate vis-a-vis uh, -vis economic reform in, in which uh, reaping benefit will take time and it will take some time. So that's why people are jumping and the political bickering is replacing a police dialogue in these countries. And number three, and this is also inherited from the sort of the old legacy of what I would say the authoritarian bargain that is versus the, what is uh, you know, suggested uh, as institutional bargain is that economic fortunes has been driven by political connection and it doesn't seem to be changing actually in the countries that are witnessing the transition because clearly if you just uh, uh, look at who is ruling in, in Tunisia or in Egypt or in, in the countries that are Morocco, clearly still the system is that it's driven by economic fortunes. It's in, in the belief that it's still uh, 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 driven by the political connection and also not to forget that the negative perception about the private sector in the Arab countries generally is still prevailing and the private sector so far hasn't come up with a kind of plans. I am not talking about the state because I agree that there is a need for a vision that comes from the state and it was clear that in Eastern Europe that the vision was there and countries knew where they are heading. But if it was left now to the state, which is a kind of a shamble, uh, uh, also uh, disoriented, 
other actors are not really presenting uh, alternatives to the ongoing uh, situation. So the outcome of this is that clearly that frustration at the streets level is not uh, so far managed or uh, trans, uh, translated into political power. And this is why I believe that we're still witnessing some violence, in, in, be it in Tunisia or be it in Egypt, it just because that frustration, that uh, uh, marginalized group, that be it in the informal sector, be it the youth, uh, are unable to influence the policy making. And one of the reasons behind the revolution, behind the awakening, is that that these groups wants to have a say, want their voice to be heard, but it's only through now informal, actually, institutions or informal venues or arenas that they can translate their frustrations uh, instead of the formal institutions. And so uh, also the process of building these uh, institutions or formal institutions uh, to uh, be more responsive is not happening. Thus, we're having an increasing number of people actually dismayed by the process <coughs> They are actually the popularity as measured for either the brotherhoods or for other political parties. Actually, it's dwindling, it's declining. But we are not witnessing sort of a migration from the brotherhoods or Islamic parties to other groups. Uh, rather, it is an increasing number that is turning their backs to the process. And this is, again, is not some, uh, a good sign. And um, last thing before uh, I say what can be done about it is that the agenda or the economic agenda of the Islamic parties are, are actually left many gray area. They never assigned a clear role for the private sector. They never sort of set the limits for the role of the public sector or the civil society or what is expected from the private sector. That is left open and this is why the private sector is so far hesitant, uh, uh, unable to sort of uh, play an active role in the transformation or in the transition uh, process. Now, um, I was surprised that Mino hasn't mentioned that the rule of law uh, as one of the pillars that must be also emphasized actually during this time, the, the time process. If judiciary in these countries, instead of being the uh, sort of uh, uh, the uh, party, is playing also are taking part in the political process, actually this is, uh, again, uh, what jeopardizes the whole transformation process. Uh, actually, what is the international community can do? What can be done? It is purely domestic, and I agree with, with, uh, with Marwan's and others on that, but actually there is a need for an open and social dialogue in these countries, parallel to this political polarization process, but there is also a need for a kind of social dialogue that would include unions, consumers, associations, to create that balance. There is, there is a need, and that is also mentioned in the report that I had the chance to look at. It's about the market, the domestic market structure. It's a highly concentrated market uh, with few controlling the economy, or controlling many sectors, be it in banking, being in manufacturing, be it otherwise. How can that be altered? How can, what kind of policies, what kind of conditions can be created and introduced in order sort of to alter the market structure and include not only the informal but also the formal SMEs uh, in, 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 in these countries. Also actually the capacity to 
come up with policy alternatives is very weak, be it in the parliament, be it within the emerging groups, youth or other groups actually. And there is an area where uh, also capacity building is very much needed uh, at, at the domestic level in order to shift the debate from sort of accusation or in, 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 in opposite directions to a kind of policy uh, dialogue that can sort of improve that level. And finally, and I will end it here, is that the issue of transport is not now, there must be some at least minor steps. In, in terms of budget, in terms, you know, Marwan has alluded to this, is that at least why don't they have citizens' budget? And why, how can people engage in sitting and deciding priorities? And even whether a decentralization in the some Arab countries or some other countries is a better form of uh, sort of uh, spending the public money is something that also uh, I think should be put on, on, on the table uh, uh, to discuss in, in, um, in that regard. These minor steps sometimes are helpful in at least giving the right signals to uh, the actors or to the dismayed or frustrated actors that are increasingly turning their back to any kind of police dialogue or formal institutions and resort to the what we uh, describe here as streets politics, which seems to uh, be more efficient actually in getting some groups or, or, or responding to some uh, disenfranchised or uh, groups that unable to influence or enter the sort of the formal uh, the uh, formal institutions in that uh, regard and. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it here uh, for the discussions, uh, Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you very much, Ibrahim. Before I open it up to the audience, uh, we've actually taken a little more time than I expected during our initial uh, interaction, but I, I just wanted to ask two quick questions, uh, one of Minouche, and hopefully get quick answers, uh, and one for Marwan, uh, before we open it up to you. Uh, for Marwan, um, what about the, the, the Gulf countries, the countries that are, haven't been as directly affected uh, by the turmoil? And uh, uh, to what extent can they uh, do more to help? To what extent uh, are they uh, uh, themselves going to be uh, the object of uh, uh, political turmoil, if at all, uh, in, your, uh, in your assessment? And to uh, Minusha, I wanted to ask, uh, uh, when I look at these headline numbers of IMF assistance, uh, $8 billion you mentioned at the beginning for three countries, now $4.8 billion being discussed for Egypt, they look like small numbers to me uh, relative to uh, the IMF balance sheet and relative to uh, what the IMF, and I know this is a loaded question, uh, what the IMF uh, is, done, is doing for the Europeans. Um, so my question to you is, why is that? You know, what kind of considerations are uh, restraining the IMF from doing more uh, financially? Yeah. Ori, I try to think of the Arab world in sort of simple terms. Before the Arab awakenings, I lump all of the Arab world in one category. I call it the time is infinite category. The uh, notion that they have all the time in the world before they uh, you know, uh, try political and economic reform, that, that they can afford to wait forever. Uh, 
after the Arab awakenings, the Arab world basically became two categories. Those whose time moved from being infinite to being limited, and I'll talk about the Gulf countries uh, as part of that group, and those whose time was up. <laughs> the time is up, uh, we know about them. It's Egypt, it's Tunisia, they kept saying time is infinite until people said, no more time. You don't want to do reform, we'll do it for you. Those whose time is limited, ironically involve most of the monarchies, the poor monarchies of Jordan and Morocco and the rich monarchies of the Gulf. They have, to, they have more time because, ironically, their systems enjoy more legitimacy than the sort of republican systems of the Arab world. The question is, are they using this time wisely to put in place a reform process from above that would avoid them the fate of Egypt and Tunisia and that would create a gradual reform process that does not introduce shocks to the system on one hand, but that is serious and sustained on the other hand so that it does result in power sharing. Are they doing so? The short answer is no. Gulf countries are using their money, basically, their financial resources, thinking that money can buy everything. You know? <laughs> they can buy a lot of things, but not everything. And uh, we are now witnessing problems in rich countries. Of course, the first problem we witnessed was Bahrain, even though Bahrain is the poorest of the rich countries. But we're now witnessing problems in Kuwait. Okay, I mean, I was just in Kuwait last, uh, last week. I met with a group of youth activists, men and women. Listening to them speak, I mean, I was, this kind of talk was never possible two years ago. They want a constitutional monarchy. They want total separation of the royal family from the conducting of the affairs of the state. They, I mean, they, it's a different environment, even in countries that are rich. And so uh, uh, the short answer is, I'm afraid that countries that have not undergone transition in the Arab world have not yet internalized the argument that from now on, if they want to keep their power, they have to share it. But that you know, having absolute power and conducting affairs the way they used to in the past is no longer sustainable. Thank you. <clears throat> Minush? Yeah. On the uh, size of the programs, I mean, the size of IMF financing is determined by a number of factors, including the size of the economy, the financing needs, and so on. While the numbers may look small relative to some of the European economies, some of the European economies we've been financing are much bigger economies than the Middle Eastern ones. So that's a big driver of the difference. And I think all along we have said IMF financing is is catalytic. I mean we you know we don't envision ourselves providing all the financing needs for these economies. And in the European programs, as you well know, the European partners have actually provided most of the financing and we've provided some financing, but more importantly, a macroeconomic framework which everyone could get behind. And I think in many countries in the Middle East it's very it will be very similar. So you know the Egypt program, four point eight billion, but the theory is that that would be part of a much wider financing package. And uh, I think the same is envisioned for Tunisia, for Jordan, Yemen, and others. So um, so we don't see ourselves as, uh, as filling the entire But gap. Minush, is it still true that uh, Europeans got much larger numbers relative to quotas, relative to standards, uh, than, the, uh, than the Arab countries can hope to get? 
It varies. I mean, you know, some of the, we have something called an exceptional access criterion where some of the European programs were what we consider exceptional access. But similarly, the Jordan program was exceptional access. So it was sort of in the same orders of magnitude. But it, it varies, to be honest, depending on the country's circumstances. So that's one example which was the same, the same criterion. Very good. Ladies and gentlemen, questions? Yes, sir. Right here at the front. My name is Mohammed Shinawa, the Voice of America. For Dr. Nehmet, IMF conditions resulted in food riots in Egypt in 1977. How would the IMF help uh, Egypt in this case of instability now? And for Dr. Masher, stability is crucial to economic, whether it's investment or tourism or economic sectors. How important was to apply transitional justice mechanisms to set the right conditions for facing the chronic economic problems and getting aid from outside. Let me ask to uh, assemble two or three questions and then we come back to the panel. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, my name is Mohammed Ali. I'm a professor lecturer at uh, School of International Service at American University. And one more thing about me, I just came back from Egypt a few hours ago. Um, and I've seen, you know, and through my research, I've seen that, yes, there's the problem with the technical dimension, sometimes technical understanding, especially of Muslim parties or Islamic parties, and I've done research on that. My question to the IMF and the World Bank, what sort of non-economic, non-monetary dialogue have you been involved in? Sort of the outreach, in part education for these parties about what they, you know, they can do to engage their societies and, and you guys with, in economic dialogue. Thank you. One more, and then we come back to the panel. Maybe the lady there at the back at the extreme left. Thank you. Uh, Besmo, Man, University of Waterloo and, um, and Brookings. I'm wondering about the, the IMF loan to Egypt with, you know, one of the greatest bills or, or budget bills that the government faces is the, um, is the subsidized fuel. And, you know, or I should say fuel and, and food, um, with 80% of that being wheat alone, and obviously, as the largest importer of wheat, Egypt is facing a huge dilemma. Can you tell us a little bit about how much, how much stock does the Egyptian government really have? Because there's so much, unfortunately, false information in the media, in the Egyptian media. How much wheat does it actually have in stock? Is there a projection by the IMF as to when they will actually run out of wheat and face the kind of, uh, of shortages that's been talked about here? Okay, let me maybe start with uh, Jean-Pierre. Do you, do you have any response? There's a question here about the kind of dialogue the bank, and I know the bank has a wide yes. dialogue, so please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, of course, the bank is, a, is first and foremost an economic institution, so what we do relates to the economy one way or the other. But, uh, and we also complement the, the IMF, so we try to, uh, to complement each other and to, and to address uh, more structural issues in the bank, long-term issues. And those issues are not always addressed in purely economic terms. When we, especially in this part of the world where we are facing a situation of, of social um, turmoil and where the population has great expectation, the youth, the women have great expectation about what is going to be next, we try to uh, promote dialogue uh, among um, among the, uh, you know, the civil society itself, you know, try to, for instance, on the issue of, of, of the youth, for instance, try to uh, promote youth unemployment uh, through uh, uh, no, 
through SMEs, for instance, you know, the small and medium-term enterprise, how can we uh, help them uh, create uh, their own jobs? The youth, we have even a program for youth entrepreneurs, for just uh, as an illustration. And, and those youth are really located in poor districts, in, in, in suburbs of, of the major uh, urban centers. And we uh, uh, try to foster that dialogue as well, to pass on some of our expertise, the capacity building that they need, the, the, uh, the, uh, the basics of uh, being a self-made uh, man, even if you are poor. Um, another would be a women's participation. We just actually, uh, uh, last week on Friday, uh, launched from Beirut uh, with Carnegie the, uh, the recent gender report where we also tried to involve uh, the local uh, civil society, uh, the NGOs, to... Uh, uh, voice and to uh, brainstorm on the uh, on, on the role of women and how to increase the economic participation of women, because that's something that we are also very much concerned about. Uh, for instance, Morocco, Tunisia has a level of women participation in the economy which is half that of Indonesia, for instance. Mm. Uh, so there is clearly uh, 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 resources that are not being tapped in terms of the, the woman's own development and, and role in society and the economic uh, aspect of it. Um, the bank is also very much involved as a follow-up to the uh, Arab Awakening. We are very much involved in the governance program. Governance, economic governance in the, in the broader sense, you know, how to bring transparency, for instance, in budget processes, uh, how to uh, increase voice and representation, how to strengthen the parliament and make the parliaments more professional in the way they are dealing with issues. Uh, so... Uh, we mentioned that the bank has a wide spectrum of, of and I have not even mentioned the sectoral sectors like agriculture, water, where, where we have uh, roles that goes way beyond the, the pure economics of it. Um, so just to give you a sort of a, a general answer. Yeah, I just want to add that uh, uh, a lot of the work of the World Bank is under the radar screen, not quite as... Uh, uh, you know, visible as uh, some of the other stuff that goes on, but it, it is very, very important over a long period of time. I'm a firm uh, believer in that. Um, Minush, you want to address? Yeah, I had a couple. Um, just on the, lo- I'll go last to top uh, on the wheat on the wheat stock. I don't know what the current wheat stock is is in Egypt, so I can't answer that. I'm afraid. On the issue of energy subsidies, I think our approach has evolved in some very important ways since the example, the historical example that you cite. First, I think our approach to energy subsidies now is posited on the fact that it has to be communicated and consultative and prepared politically. Um, And I think there wasn't enough of that in energy subsidy reform in the past, that there really needs to be built a social consensus on the need for subsidy reform, and that has to be communicated to the public over an extensive period of time. It is not something you can do overnight. Second, uh, I think we have a, now a much more realistic view of the pace of reform. The governments need to pre-announce that we plan a reform program over several years. The prices will grow up gradually so that both households and firms can adjust to market prices, but that you phase it in in an orderly fashion over time. Third, we put a huge emphasis now on putting in place compensation mechanisms to make sure that the poorest don't bear the cost of the subsidy reform. Uh, and in many countries now, one can point to good examples where poor households, often best compensated for by cash, uh, 
rather than subs- rather than subsidized commodities. And we would argue that you shouldn't reform energy prices until you've got those compensation mechanisms in place beforehand. Um, and increasingly, we're trying to argue that subsidy reform is an equity issue, that the people who benefit are the rich and the middle class. It's not the poor. And if we're going to do things and make the kind of investments that need to happen that will benefit the poor, the rich and the middle class will have to pay more market-based prices. So our, our, you know, our motto is subsidize the poor, not the commodities. That's our sort of bottom line. On the issue of non-economic dialogue, uh, we've actually come quite a long way. You know, it used to be IMF missions would go to a country, not talk to anybody, only talk to the government, and then leave in the dark of night. It's not quite like that anymore. Um, you know, all of our missions now have an explicit outreach plan as part of their uh, part of their uh, sort of. Uh, what we call the policy note before they go out to meet with the government. And that outreach plan would include meetings with unions, civil society, the media. Um, and I think governments in the region, you know, they are our prime interlocutor. But they themselves are beginning to realize that they need to do this. And it's tentative and it's early. And, you know, they might not want to share everything with uh, various groups. But I think the trajectory is clear that this will have to increase over time. So we have a much cuddlier IMF than we used to. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Marwan, I'm going to ask you, but uh, Ibrahim, I'll also ask you if you have anything to add later. Yeah, Marwan, please. Well, uh, the question was about transitional justice, which is an important building block uh, in in the process of institution building that Minouche was talking about. Unfortunately, we're not there yet in... Uh, uh, Arab countries that have undergone transitions. If uh, you're talking about Libya or Tunisia or Egypt in particular, they're not there yet. It's what, we're, what we are seeing so far is a what I call is a zero-sum fight between the secular and the Islamist forces. Uh, and it's uh, 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 the Islamists want to dominate, the seculars are denying you know, the right of Islamists to exist. And in such a fight, Whoever wins that fight will become the new autocrat of the Arab world. We are not seeing a fight for building institutions, for for pluralism yet in the Arab world. What we're seeing is still a process of shock for everybody. Somebody, I think, put it very aptly. He said, in Egypt, the Islamists are behaving in a majoritarian way as if the elections mean everything. And... The secular forces are behaving in a state of denial way as if the elections mean nothing. And neither party uh, still uh, have internalized that they are there to stay and that there is no way but to work together, not agree together, but work together on building you know, uh, the institutions of the state, including on transitional justice. I mean, Morocco has a very good experience. Not exactly. It wasn't a transition from one system to the other, but it was a transition from one leader to his son when, when King Hassan died and they had a, a committee for reconciliation in the early uh, 2000s. And it, it worked very well, at least in diffusing the tension that has built up over years of, let's say, a brutal repression of the opposition in Morocco. It, 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 it paved the ground, if you will, for a better atmosphere. We need that to happen in Libya, for sure. We need that to happen in Egypt and Tunisia. Unfortunately, it has not. And there are many examples to, to, to look at. We have you know, South Africa as an example. We have many examples around the world. But 
so far we're still in the early phases of a fight for survival okay by both and they have not yet reached the point where they understand both of them are there to stay so that they can move to the next phase including to look at things like institution transitional justice this is very different from the situation in the united states zero sum anything to add just very quick remark uh, on sort of the discussion is that with high expectations um some of the political actors and that we actually came to conclude when we were in Egypt that those who are in power are uh, tend not to take responsibility for the deteriorating economic and, uh, and political situation uh, including the brotherhoods actually and some of the leaders would tell you that uh, this is not our government and we are not responsible for the deteriorating conditions which means that nobody will sort of take action in the right Uh, direction and maybe it's good to also to keep uh, uh, in mind that the transition process is open for all kind of scenarios and uh, it's basically either you know the situation could continue, would continue as is and there is the international community maybe would sort of support the status quo in a way or uh, you know a more inclusive uh, uh, process uh, could emerge or there might be an economic and uh, political cliff again uh, which is open you know to all kind of uh, uh, options or or, or, or possibilities in that regard or if i may i was in egypt two weeks ago and carnegie had uh, organized a conference for both secular and religious political parties in egypt and both uh, were hurling you know accusations at each other and no one was talking about the economic situation no one and so i brought it up i said do you, are you guys aware that there is an economic cliff coming in in about two months you know where <laughs> and are you doing anything about it the first round of questions they did not answer it either and they went back to hurling ac- political accusations at each other then i asked the question again i said can someone at least attempt to answer this question are you trying to do anything about it and one person said do you want to to know the honest answer is no we're not going to do anything about it until we hit the cliff and we fall and once we fall we will realize that we have to do something about it until then we're not going to okay uh, i think we should finish this by 10 to 2 if we possibly can and uh, let me ask for another round of say two three questions and then come back to the panel for uh, closing uh, yes sir yeah thank you very much allow me to introduce myself my name is rami kharabshi a political officer with the embassy of jordan in washington dc Firstly, thank you so much for this informative uh, session and allow me to extend my best regards to the IMF team which just returned from Amman. Um, I have a couple of questions and I beg your pardon, one cannot commit to one after such a, a great uh, session. My first question is uh, regarding uh, the, the, regional, uh, the regional situation in, in the Middle East. Um, what happened to, to the big ideas of the past of multi-track diplomacy and bringing back state to state interaction to to resolve 
it used to be to resolve problems uh, of, of political issues only, but now it seems like the need is more for uh, is more focused on the need to to uh, let's say move forward economically. So great uh, innovations and great uh, let's say uh, partnerships are are back in in business in the Middle East. So is it still possible to to reach such commitments or such programs in a state uh, after the so-called Arab Spring? Uh, in which uh, political, let's say, competition within states in the region is, is so high that it makes it difficult to reach consensus over uh, regional programs. The, the second uh, issue is regarding the comments of, uh, of our uh, respectful IMF um, uh, official uh, regarding uh, giving the public uh, enough time to understand the need for, uh, for uh, let's say, revisiting the, the energy strategies and subsidies in the region. Um, how do you evaluate Jordan's, uh, let's say, uh, attempt to do that after the numerous uh, media appearances of Prime Minister Abdullah Ansour to explain to the public, of, to the public, uh, to the Jordanian public, the need to revisit the energy strategies. Thank you. Yes, sir. Here and then the gentleman at the back. And I'm afraid we're going to have to call it a day after that. Yeah. Uh, Gary Kleiman, my company does independent analysis of emerging financial markets. I want to get back to the partner uh, part of the question and uh, raise the issue for any of the panelists to respond to whether the, and this is certainly something I've heard in the private financial community, which is my major constituency and throughout the region the past two years, that the partnership mix is qualitatively different now. Uh, it was raised in terms of the GCC, but they've provided a lot more support than the West has to Egypt in particular uh, this past year. And as you know, the conditionalities and perspectives are much different uh, between the GCC and the traditional Bretton Woods institutions and other partners. And we had a very sad precedent in Pakistan showing us that this uh, doesn't work out uh, from a team standpoint uh, very well. Uh, and the other aspect uh, in terms of, uh, let's say, some of the other uh, countries, but Egypt is certainly uh, very prominent here because Egypt relied on private market financing uh, for its local debt, uh, which has totally evaporated, even though some money has come back to the stock market, but it's the role of private financial markets. Uh, Jordan is uh, not necessarily meeting its IMF conditionality, but it thinks it can raise money, as the Moroccans just did, in external bond markets. And again, private financial market players have very different perspectives uh, from the traditional official community. And I wonder whether any of you could address how this might relate you know, to the standoff where we are now. Good. Hello, my name is Ed Melkert. I was head of mission in Iraq and right now advising the government of Oman on social dialogue and uh, institutional reform. And I very much agree with what Ibrahim said about the necessity to develop those kind of mechanisms to make progress. And this may be the problem for the, for the bank and, and the fund that uh, there's a lot of thinking going on, of course, in long-term recipes and for good reasons, and the publication is, is a very excellent one. But what is needed much more than the long-term recipes is uh, short-term gains that, that people notice, young people finding a job, uh, private business, particularly small business, seeing that there is some perspective to develop um, their prospects. So my question to you is, is there, is there evidence of short-term gains that can be achieved or that have been achieved and that could somehow serve as an inspiration 
or an example to countries in the region that are desperately longing for short-term progress, thinking that the long-term is really a long-term, particularly also given the political reluctance that is, uh, that is very much around mm -hmm. in order to accept <coughs> true, um, um, uh, substantial, sustainable reforms. Good. Well, uh, for a final round, then, to address the questions and, uh, and also any, any final comments you want to make. We have about seven, eight minutes. Uh, maybe Ibrahim would just go from uh, right to left. Uh, Ibrahim? Uh, thank you. It's good to feel that I am on the right. So, so it's, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, well, I just want to add something sort of maybe to uh, rather maybe complicate the because I'm quite interested in the process itself. How is the transition the transition has been managed in countries like Egypt and Tunisia? Uh, I want to add not only the international community role, which, you know, through the veil, through other, but actually the regional role must be also uh, sort of entered into the picture. Because when we talk about the FDI employing into other countries, etc., well, FDI is going to Egypt and going to Tunisia, but it's sort of politically motivated and for certain groups that actually could have also uh, influenced the way and the policies uh, have been made in, in that regard and that must be kept um, uh, in mind. Uh, and um, my second uh, remark and that is uh, probably uh, to the World colleagues from the World Bank and the IMF is that we should not undermine the communication strategy or the outreach that comes along with, you know, now reforming subsidies, etc. Unless there is a genuine social uh, and uh, open public debate in these countries, it will be extremely difficult sell in these respective countries. Unless there is a strong constituency within these countries, sort of to believe and try and, and champion these policies, I think it will always be, the government will be always on the losing ends with, you know, either the new actors that are coming into the picture and also the parliamentarians with, you know, the, uh, uh, their tendencies for uh, populist uh, policies, and n not also to forget that now, uh, you know, they are addressing certain constituency so far in the process of transition. Policies were driven by short-term horizon instead of any long-term vision, and this actually sort of jeopardized any long-term sort of uh, 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 solution that we can uh, uh, think of. And on short-term gains, I think just you need to write, send the right signals at this stage. Send the right signals by sort of the way you're making policies, the way you're introducing these policies. I think it's it's fairly uh, now, it's uh, for Egyptians, it's fair now for the average Egyptians to know what kind of deals the IMF is going to uh, to struck with the, the Egyptians. What is the issue of the interim, potential interim uh, uh, agreement with the IMF uh, before the election, after the election? I, I think that that also would signals at the domestic level and from the international level, a new approach for the policy making and and, uh, and openness. And I'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ibrahim. Um, I'll address the issue of partnerships uh, and leave the economic stuff to, <laughs> to my colleagues. Uh, I totally agree with you. Uh, you know, the partnership mix is different, and we need a model where everybody has a say in uh, the future course of the country. In Jordan, we 
actually have, a, I think, a very good but very telling experience where we did such a thing seven years ago, long before the Arab awakenings, and where and a, a process of reform from above were attempted, and the king did uh, had a national committee uh, that had people from the private sector, from government, from parliament, civil society, you know, uh, women activists, media, etc., and was entrusted with, co with coming up with a political and economic vision for the country, but not a rhetorical one, one with clear programs, uh, timelines, again, performance indicators, etc. 400 Jordanians participated in that effort, which produced a very uh, you know, unique blueprint in the Arab world in that it was a numerical quantitative one, not just, uh, and that encompassed both political and economic reform. Of course, the 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 the, the, the effort was was put on the on the shelves because of the political aspects. Because you know the system was not ready to abandon its rentier-based uh, sort of approach to development. So it is not impossible, but it's not as as Ed you know Ed wanted short-term gains. Um, frankly, I don't know if there are short-term gains. I mean. This is not a magical wand. You, the, 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 the effort that I talked about required 10 years. But it at least showed people the light at the end of the tunnel. They knew that in return for sacrifices, they knew where they were getting or had an idea of what they were getting, and they participated in developing that idea. But today, what people feel is that they've been asked all the time to make sacrifices in return for nothing. They don't know. They, 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 know. they don't know if the year after they're not going to be asked for more sacrifices and the year after for more sacrifices. And their ability to provide such sacrifices is, of course, extremely limited. Uh, so what I'm, what I'm saying is that these are very difficult economic conditions that can only be addressed, not just through economic measures, but political ones. And as Brahim said, new social contracts in the Arab world between the ruled and the rulers. Yes. Um, on the question of uh, Jordan's energy sector reform, I mean, I think Jordan is off to a good start. Uh, and, you know, there's a new parliament, so there's a, new, a need to rebuild the consensus around the path of energy sector reform. I think the fact that they've put in place a compensation scheme where 70% of the population is compensated for the price increases is very generous and has been important for cushioning it. But uh, they need to keep going because there's more to come. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the message on Jordan. Um, and on uh, private financial markets, I mean, it's true. They have slightly different criteria. They care a lot about capacity to repay. Um, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, at the moment, the search for yield and given what you can get buying paper from other countries, some of these countries look pretty attractive, even though there are risks. So I'm not so sure that the private financial markets will be as, um, as negative as you imply uh, from your question. We'll see. Um, and also, clearly, those countries that are going to markets with IMF programs and some enhancements, some of them are going in with enhancements, as Tunisia did with a U.S. government guarantee recently. So they've been able to do quite well on the private financial markets. And then on the short-term gains, that's a really difficult question. I, um, you know, I don't want to sound trite, but you know, freedom is a bit of a short-term gain, actually. The fact that people are so outspoken and free to speak their minds in the way that they never could before in the region is a short-term gain. Um, 
I think the other thing is, um, th- and this is where the international community can play a role, is to send signals of support. It is surprisingly important to people in the region what the rest of the world is saying and whether they're seen to be supporting this transition or not. Um, and so some of the proposals, I think, in Jean-Pierre's book about trade access, uh, labor, finance, are, even if the numbers are relatively small given the needs, the symbolic factor is, is, is important. And I think the last thing I'd say on gains is that a lot of the reforms that are needed on the business environment and on the labor markets in particular will produce short-term gains if they are done. There will be some a, a small minority of privileged groups with vested interests who will lose, and they will be very vocal. But for the vast majority of the population, if you get rid of the horrendous business licensing regimes and you get rid of all the restrictions on labor markets, the majority of the population stands to gain. But you've got to get through that. You've got to get through the vested interests complaining to get there. But I think there are potential wins there. Thank you. Jean-Pierre, uh, closing. Yes, yeah. thank you, Ari. Um, just also to follow up on the question on short-term gains, because that's really one that is a difficult one. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, when the report was requested by the G8 and um, the Deauville partner, so G8, Turkey, and the GCC, uh, they were all after what can be done in the very short term. You know, how can we help? You know, what is it that can be done that will have immediate results? The problem is that there are very few low-hanging fruits. You know, what are uh, actually <laughs> what are the possibilities? Um, so, but at the same time, what we try to 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 do in the report is to uh, to provide this you know long-term vision and then to kind of bring down this vision in terms of what this implies in terms of short-term and medium-term policy uh, recommendations. So we see in the report you have actually for each single pillar uh, being on, on, on the uh, uh, investment regime or on the business climate or the economic governance or the knowledge economy, we try to see what can be done in the relatively short term. Uh, and this would bring, obviously would bring results. But it's not like something that can be done without uh, having those uh, political uh, consensus and, 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 and political will. Uh, all these short-term gains, uh, for instance, you know, this, uh, this region is, it was said during this, uh, during this uh, presentation that it's really about rent sinking and how to move from a rent sinking, how to move from privilege to competition, how to uh, create you know, the, uh, the institution that would foster that competition. This could have very short-term results. Um, this could transform these economies. Um, we know also from the transition in Central and European, uh, in Central Europe and Eastern Europe, that certain countries at that time, back in the uh, in the uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, when they took some very difficult measures, were able to generate uh, results uh, after a few years. Uh, but you need to uh, create and you need to engineer this uh, social. Uh, and political agreement about um, the uh, the direction of of what is being proposed to the population uh, in Eastern Europe, it was very clear um, the young population and the uh, not so young were willing to do the sacrifice because they knew very for sure that if they were going through a difficult period of time, maybe ten years, fifteen years, so we are not talking about short term gains, mm-hmm. but they were all. No, they were all knowing that 
pursuing that path will bring a better world. Not necessarily for themselves, but at least for their children. And that was a powerful, that was a powerful narrative that a society was able to, to get together. Now, we cannot uh, transplant that narrative in the Arab world. It's, it's very difficult to find the kind of understanding about where to go, uh, where the population, uh, different generations within the country would be uh, aligned and would, would look in the same direction. Now, if you don't have that in place, the short-term measures could actually provide some relief uh, here and there, but they are not going to be uh, productive down the road. They may be even counterproductive. So you need to have the right type of, of short-term gains. <laughs> and, and those short-term gains are going to be very difficult to, uh, uh, to, to, to generate in the current, in the current environment. Um, just a word on original cooperation. Uh, Nemat was saying before before the, uh, before we started that a uh, number of regions that are famous for trading and other regions are famous for signing trade agreements. I think that's a good <laughs> one, and everybody would recognize who is who. And uh, and um, clearly there is also potential short-term gains in terms of uh, fostering that regional uh, integration. You know, the fact that uh, Morocco is not trading with Algeria, you know, that the border between the two countries are still closed is a major problem. Opening that border uh, uh, brings that wall down or open up that border would create uh, short-term gains for both populations. And, uh, but again, we are back to this issue of not only the political will, because I think there is political will maybe in, in certain quarters, but then you need political cooperation. And unfortunately, most of the regional agreements that have been signed, some of them, even among the oldest trade agreements, uh, have not really materialized in anything just uh, than just paper. So these are paper agreements that have yet to be implemented. Thank you uh, very much. Uh, in conclusion, I just want to say that uh, it's absolutely true that uh, progress in the region will be determined domestically, uh, not through the help of partners. Uh, but equally, I think the uh, framework uh, that the partners, the external partners, can provide through the IMF, through the World Bank, through others, uh, I think becomes even more important in a situation where the future is unclear. At least you have some kind of uh, reference point uh, that can be provided for these countries. And uh, uh, so I, 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 I wanted to end on that reasonably uh, positive note, I hope. Uh, thank you very much to the panel. I think they did a wonderful job. And thank you all for being here today.